Good morning. A um, couple of uh, quick things this morning as we get started. Uh, the first is that we are doing uh, a partnership with a group called Saturate USA. We showed a video about it a few weeks ago, uh, um, if you recall. But the, the idea, and there's more information in the bulletin, but the idea is that uh, we would help put together uh, packets and distribute um, some bags, like door hanger bags, which were evangelistic tools. Um, inside of these are, uh, you know, like a gospel tract, some information from the church, as well as the Jesus uh, movie, the, which is put out by Campus Crusade. Uh, Saturate USA has uh, partnered with Crew in order to do this. Their, their idea is that uh, all zip codes in the United States would be covered with, uh, you know, this information in the gospel. And uh, so we are partnering to uh, do uh, our zip code here, which is whatever it is, 404, right? Uh, which is a big zip code. Um, there's going to be a work day on November 17th, which is a Wednesday from 10 a.m. to 1 p.m. to help start put together some of these bags and maybe go out and to distribute some, um, some of this information. And we need volunteers to help stuff the bags and to go out. Um, there are going to be more of these in the future. We're not going to try and do it all in one day, I don't think. Uh, Cassie Chapman, who I don't see, but, but her family's here, um, is, uh, is actually headed to this. But you can also contact the office if you've got some information or you know, questions about it, and we can get you in touch with her as well. So, Also, uh, our harvest dinner, we are going to have that next week on the 21st. And uh, we are excited because it's food. Um, <laughs> And as I said, first service, that is the best part of Christian fellowship is food. And the people. Like, people are good, too. But, like, but food, definitely. Um, <clears throat> there's uh, sign-up sheets in the foyer for, at the information desk for uh, people to cook turkeys and hams. And also, uh, we ask that you bring side dishes and everything. We haven't done one of these for two years now, so, or a year and whatever, COVID. Um, but bring side dishes so we can eat good food. That—that That that is uh, from the pulpit, so it's got to (laughs) be. And there's a congregational meeting on December 5th, apparently, so at 5 p.m. So if you want to come to that, uh, we'll have uh, our budget and and everything available for people then to check out and ask any questions or have any thoughts or opinions you want to the leadership to know. That's a good time to do it. So, all right. I think that's about it for that kind of stuff. Have you ever seen warning labels on something that you thought, uh, you know, when you looked at it, you're like, that's kind of silly. I scoured the internet this week to find silly warning labels, and so here are the ones that I found. So here's the first one. This is a hairdryer. Don't use it while you're sleeping. Seems smart. (laughs) Here's the second one. No swimming if you can't swim. Very important. Here's the third one. This is a hair thing. I don't use it. But I think it was found in a hotel. But you don't want to use this on your eyes because it can burn you. And here's the next one. How to properly seatbelt your kid. The one on the right looks way more fun, though. So here's a don't swallow a clothes hanger. If there's a fire, exit the building before you tweet about it or put it on Instagram or Snapchat. You know, 
Um, yeah. Don't, don't leave stuff of value while you're getting communion. I wouldn't think you would have to put that in a church. <laughs> but apparently you do. <laughs> All right, and this is, of course, the, the one that started everything. Um, McDonald's coffee is hot. Why do you need that? <laughs> it's a hot drink. You should know that before you spill it on yourself and sue McDonald's. I don't know. A lot of times we see signs like these, we think, you know, if you just have a little bit of common sense, you don't need these signs um, and these warnings. But there are times where warning signs are worthwhile. Like right now, we've got all kinds of road construction up and down Simpson Chapel because they're working on tearing down all the trees, which is sad, and widening the road, which will be kind of fun. Um, But... (laughs) You know, the, you know, you see these signs, you know there are going to be workers there, and you know that you're going to have to slow down, probably stop, because they keep stopping us as we come into work and everything. So, like, that's a good warning sign for that. Um, what about the check engine light in your car? That, that's a worthwhile warning sign. It usually means that you should go get that looked at. Um, you know, that's usually good. Or on bottom road, you know, you've got these signs that say the road may flood. They should change that to the road will flood, but, um, <laughs> but you know, the road may flood. And then they, they added the new part at the bottom that's like, don't enter the flooded waters. That's a good sign. That's a good sign. Worthwhile. Now, of course, those last two make me wonder how many good warning signs we tend to ignore because I've definitely ignored my check engine light and uh, I've, I may have driven through the water on Bottom Road once or twice. Not now. My car is a lot lower now, but also there's probably a reason I have a new car because I didn't check the check engine light. I don't know. War- warnings can be important, but we still have to listen and we have to act on those warnings. This morning, we're going to continue our little short three-week series in Second Peter by looking at a warning that the Apostle Peter wrote to his audience. And if the, this warning was ignored, these, there, there, there were going to be some pretty scary consequences to that. Peter's warning his readers to be wary of false teachers who were infiltrating the church, the early church at that time. But before he gets into that, Peter starts by writing and, and telling them of the authentic message itself as well as his credentials. And so if you have your Bibles, you want to open to Second Peter, and we're going to, be, we're going to start in chapter 1, and then we're going to get through all of chapter 2 this morning. So we're going to start at verse 12 in chapter 1 where he says, So I will always remind you of these things, even though you know them and are firmly established in the truth you now have. I think it is right to refresh your memory as long as I live in the tent of this body because I know that I will soon put it aside as our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. And I will make every effort to see that after my departure you will always be able to remember these things. Last week we talked about how we can live godly lives and we saw how Peter described that life um, with this list that some would call a ladder Uh, or a staircase or something like that, but where you have a foundation of faith that you build your life on, and you add to that goodness, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, mutual affection, and love. Now, Peter, as he begins this section here, he tells his readers that he wants to keep reminding them of these traits 
of, of these godly traits and, and the results of them. He says that even though you know them, even though you're firmly established in the truth, he's going to keep reminding them as long as he can. It's important that we remember the foundations of our faith and how to live a godly life. That's one of the reasons that we talk about the gospel of Jesus here so often. It's not that you don't know it. It's so that you might be reminded of the great gift that's been given to us through Jesus, that it might spur us to uh, pursue godliness and godly living as well as sharing this gift with other people. Peter also knows that his time on this earth is ending. It's coming to a close. Somehow Jesus has made that clear to him that he will die soon. And knowing that death is near, that starts to clarify your thoughts a little bit. I think, and, and you start to think more about the most important things because you know your time is short, and that's what you're going to try and get across. What maybe seemed important at one time of your life kind of fades away, and you might start to get laser-focused on things of true significance. That's what Peter is focusing on as long as he can, and, and he's going to remind them of what's important so that they will remember Peter then gives some of his credentials to help booster his message in verse 16. He says, we didn't follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory saying, this is my son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. So Peter starts this by saying that they didn't follow cleverly devised stories. They weren't making this up when they were teaching the churches about Jesus. He said they didn't really need to make anything up because the story itself was pretty amazing as it is. Because and they were eyewitnesses to Christ's majesty. To help them see this, Peter tells them of one of the most amazing experiences he had, where Christ displayed this majesty. Jesus had taken Peter, James, and John up to a mountaintop, and, and then Mark's gospel tells us in chapter 9, verses 2 and 3, he says, After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him, led them up on a high mountain where they were all alone. There he, Jesus, was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And then this cloud appears, and it kind of envelops the, all of them on top of the mountain. And, and from this cloud, this voice comes, and it says, This is my son whom I love. Peter, James, and John, they saw this with their own eyes. They heard it with their own ears. They don't need to make up stories, because what they saw was amazing as it was. And so Peter is appealing to his own eyewitness account to help bolster his, his uh, credibility, but then he's also appearing to, appealing to the witness of Scripture. In verse 19, back in Second Peter, he says, we also have the prophetic message as something completely reliable, and you will do well to pay attention to it as to a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things, for prophecy never had its origin in human will, but prophets, though humans, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. 
So again, Peter is appealing to both his and the apostles, the other apostles, eyewitness accounts of Jesus' majesty, life, his death, his resurrection, and that he was indeed God in the flesh. He says that we also have the prophetic message as something that is completely reliable. And this prophetic message that he's talking about are the Old Testament scriptures. And remember, they would not have had the complete canon. The New Testament wouldn't have been made totally yet. They had some parts of it, like Paul's letters, but some of it was not yet completed. And as he says, he says, look, we've got the scriptures. They're also reliable in what they're talking about. And what they're talking about is Jesus. The Old Testament has so many different genres, but they all point to a savior, what the Israelites called the Messiah. There are over 300 prophecies regarding the Messiah in the Old Testament that were fulfilled in Jesus. Now, that's a lot of prophecies, and and I always found it kind of tough to picture how difficult this would be. But there's one of my favorite ways to understand this is if we took just eight of these prophecies, trying to think about what are the odds of just eight of these prophecies being fulfilled in one person, even though they were written hundreds of years before his birth. So let's do some math. I know, I don't like math either, but, you know, this is worth it. The odds of one person fulfilling eight of these prophecies is one in 10 to the 17th power. So that's a 10, or let's see, a 10, I think, with 17 zeros behind it. Or a one with 17 zeros, I don't know. Math. It's a lot. 17 zeros. It's a lot of zeros. But that's hard to, that's still hard to grasp, right? Um, one of the ways that we've used here and I've used in youth group to picture this is to take that number in silver dollars. So think about a silver dollar. And if you took that number of silver, silver dollars and filled like the land area of Texas, you would get about a two-foot high stack of silver dollars if you covered the entire land area of Texas with that. Like you got to pretend Texas is flat, which a lot of it is, but it's about a two-foot deep stack of silver dollars. And then what you do is you take one of those and you randomly mark it and then you throw it out there in all of that space and however deep it goes. And then you take a person, you drop them in there, you blindfold them, and you say, go find one dollar. You have one chance to get this right. That, that's what the odds would be. And that's just with eight of the prophecies. Jesus fulfilled 300. And he couldn't have fulfilled, like, he couldn't have planned all of them because some of them were, like, where he was born. So he, had, he didn't have control over everything. Peter writes that the scriptures are reliable, that it's good that we pay attention to them since they are the light shining in the darkness. Or as Psalm 119, 105 says, your word is a lamp for my feet, a light on my path. As well, he writes that none of these prophecies came from humans, but they came from God. These prophets, though, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wrote these things down. Paul spoke about this in his letter to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3, where he says, All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. It's God-breathed that is inspired by God. 
Peter tells his audience they can trust the apostles, they can trust Peter because they were eyewitnesses to the glory of Christ. He says that we can trust the scriptures which back up the things that they spoke about. Trust the apostles, trust the scriptures. And now he comes to the second chapter where he gives this warning against false teachers. And we start in verse 1. But there were also false prophets among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. They will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the sovereign Lord who bought them, bringing swift destruction on themselves. Many will follow their depraved conduct and will bring the way of truth into disrepute. In their greed, these teachers will exploit you with fabricated stories. Their condemnation has long been hanging over them, and their destruction has not been sleeping. Peter tells his readers that there were false prophets in the days of the Old Testament, and there will be false prophets and teachers in in the days when they would be reading this, and there are still false teachers today as well. He writes that these teachers, they secretly introduce heresies, which are basically just beliefs that are contrary to the normal orthodox teaching of the apostles and of the scriptures. And so if they were secretly introducing these heresies, that means that they would likely be people who were involved in the church, who had been part of a church, and then they start to introduce these things. One of the commentators I read this week, his name's Jay Adams, he suggested it might look like this, that someone might have joined a church and and seemed to be in agreement with all the doctrines of the church, but then they start planting seeds in people's minds. Not not seeming like they're pushing back or pushing the boundaries until, you know, they might have enough of a following where they desire to change the teaching of the church. And if that doesn't work, then they may work to change the leadership of the church. And if that doesn't work, then they split with the church. And Paul, or Peter is calling their heresies destructive. And that would be destructive to a church family. How? Because people will follow their incorrect teaching. And why? Because what they're teaching, it sounds good to them. It's like what Paul writes in 2 Timothy 4, where he says, For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. And that's not going to turn out well. As Peter says, their condemnation, these false teachers, their condemnation has long been hanging over them. Their destruction is not sleeping. He then gives examples of the judgment of God on the unrighteous. Second Peter 2, verses 4 through 12. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell, putting them in chains of darkness to be held for judgment, If he did not spare the ancient world when he brought the flood on its ungodly people, but protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness, and seven others. If he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah by burning them to ashes and made them an example of what's going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued Lot, a righteous man who was distressed by the depraved conduct of the lawless, For that righteous man living among them day after day was tormented in his righteous soul by the lawless deeds he saw and heard. If this is so, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to hold the unrighteous for punishment on the day of judgment. This is especially true of those who follow the corrupt desire of the flesh and despise authority. 
bold and arrogant. They are not afraid to heap abuse on celestial beings. Yet even angels, although they are stronger and more powerful, do not heap abuse on such beings when bringing judgment on them from the Lord. But these people blaspheme in matters they do not understand. They are like unreasoning animals, creatures of instinct, born only to be caught and destroyed. And like animals, they too will perish. Peter, there's a lot there. And he uses, at the beginning, three stories to demonstrate the judgment, that there will be judgment, and that awaits these false teachers. In the first one, Peter looks at the angels who sinned against God. And that refers back to the story of Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, which is an account of the sons of God mating with human women. Now, there's a book written called First Enoch. that It's not viewed as scripture, but it is something that the people in that time would have been familiar with, especially the Jewish audience. And in this book, this scene from Genesis 6 is kind of expanded upon, and, and these sons of God, they're identified as angels rebelling against God, and their judgment was described. And it's unknown whether Peter is quoting from the book of First Enoch or if he's going off of Jewish tradition, but either way, it's something that would have been generally believed at that time, and that's what he's kind of filling in the gap here. He says these angels, they were sent to hell. They were placed in chains. They were held for judgment. The second story focuses on the flood during Noah's time, where God was so grieved by the wickedness of humans that he decided to destroy everything, to destroy his creation. The third story is from Sodom and Gomorrah. These are two cities that were irredeemable in God's sight. And he destroyed both of those cities by raining down fire from the skies. Punishment will come for those who are against God, Peter says, but but there is also rescue available for those who are godly. While most were destroyed by the flood, the Lord saved Noah and his family. While Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed, the Lord rescued Lot and most of his family. While there will be punishment, there will also be rescue. But while we are still here on this earth, we need to be cautious against teaching that would seek to lead us away from God as they seek to deceive you. Peter continues in verse 13. He says, They will be paid back with harm for the harm that they've done. Their idea of pleasure is to carouse in broad daylight. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their pleasures while they feast with you. With eyes full of adultery, they never stop sinning. They seduce the unstable. They are experts in greed and a cursed brood. They have left the straight way and wandered off to follow the way of Balaam, son of Bezer who loved the wages of wickedness, but he was rebuked for his wrongdoing by a donkey, an animal without speech, who spoke with a human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. Peter focuses in on the false teachers here, says that they will be judged, and then he writes about what they've done. He says that they carouse in broad daylight, they revel in their pleasures, which could also be a deceitfulness because they're feasting with others while they're doing this with you, he says. They have eyes full of adultery, lustful eyes. They do not stop sinning. They seduce the unstable. This would refer to those who are unstable in their faith, especially those who are newer in their faith, or even those for whom Christianity might simply be just a little part of their lives and not the most important thing in their life. If you're new in your faith and it's easier to follow false teaching because you, you don't really know the difference, 
and of your faith, if, if God is simply just one aspect of your life instead of the thing that, that is over all of it, then when something that sounds better comes along, well, you go to it because it's just another thing. You're not too discerning about it. Peter then compares these false teachers to Balaam. They say they're following the way of Balaam, who he, he appeared in the book of Numbers as somebody who would take money to call down curses on people. And in this story, he's planning on doing this to the Israelites. And he's, he's riding off on his donkey. And along the way, the donkey sees the angel of the Lord standing in the path. And the donkey's like, no, we're not going to go that way. We're going to go this way. Didn't talk at that point, but just turned. So Balaam, being the lovely person he is, started hitting the donkey get to go back the right way. Happened again. Donkey did it again. Well, then the Bible says that God opened, opened the mouth of the donkey so the donkey could speak. And the donkey says, why do you keep hitting me? <laughs> Angel of the Lord. That's my paraphrase. Um, but that's basically the story. I mean, yes, that is one of the stranger stories in the scriptures. Um, but that's what Peter's referencing here. And it's God. I believe God can do anything he wants. So finally, Peter concludes this section with a view of what their false teachers truly have to offer. Verse 17 through 22, he says, These people are springs without water. Mists driven by a storm. Blackest darkness is reserved for them. For they mouth empty, boastful words, and by appealing to the lustful desires of the flesh, they entice people who are just escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom while they themselves are slaves of depravity, for people are slaves to whatever has mastered them. If they have escaped the corruption of the world by knowing our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and are again entangled in it and are overcome, they are worse off at the end than they were at the beginning. It would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than to have, than to have known it and then to turn their backs on the sacred command that was passed on to them. Of them the proverbs are true. A dog returns to its vomit. And a sow that is washed returns to her wallowing in the mud. Ultimately, these teachers, they're springs without water. They're mists in a storm. They, they appear to have something worthwhile. They appear to have substance, but in the end, they are empty. They promise freedom, but they don't have it themselves. They are in bondage, enslaved to sin. There is only one place to find true freedom, and that is at the cross of Jesus Christ. Because that is where sin and death were conquered. It's there where the sins of the world, your sins and mine, were taken as the Lamb of God was sacrificed. That separation that, that divided us and God was closed up then. The veil was torn it's there at the cross that we find true freedom in Christ, who after three days rose again. Now for those who know that wonderful truth and turn their backs on it, Peter says it would be better if he didn't even know it to begin with. The areas that Peter discusses in this section, they are important for us to look at so that we won't begin to follow false teaching. And there are areas that probably a few of us can improve on. 
One of these is in biblical literacy, knowing what the Bible says. In a recent Barna survey, 58% of people in the United States read a Bible once or twice a year or less outside of a church service or an event. I've seen it before that, that we really can't trust that people even know the biblical stories that like my generation or before probably grew up with. Like we, took, we would take these for granted, but a lot of the younger generation, they just don't know them anymore. Biblical literacy is so important. That, that's why you know, what we preach every week comes from Scripture. And it's why we talk about finding some way, especially like this time of year where we're getting to the end of the year, we talk about finding a way to, to get into reading the Bible every day. Whether that be through a reading plan, which I would suggest longer sections, not just you know individual verses, but whatever, a reading plan or listening to it like we talked about last week or whatever. If we do this, you know, we will become so familiar with God's teachings and how he would have us li- live. I read somewhere this week that it's a little bit like learning a foreign language. Um, I've worked on four languages since high school. uh, Spanish, American Sign Language, the Ancient Greek, and Hebrew. And and I've learned a lot of the rules around them. I've learned how to pronounce words, the grammars, all of that. But but I never really grasped the languages really well. Like, I could not go to Spain, even though I took five years of Spanish, or go to Mexico. Like, I went to Mexico and was like, I have no clue what you're saying. (laughs) The only way that you're really going to learn that, to, to learn how a native speaker would speak, is to immerse yourself in that language, in that culture. It's the only way. Then you're going to start to pick up on things that only native speakers understand. You're going to start to get some of the jokes. You're going to start to know what sounds right. You, know, you don't have to focus on the grammar. Like, how many times do we focus on, how many times have you focused on grammar since you left school, you know? But you know what sounds right. (laughs) One, one. (laughs) Okay. No, that's all right. For some people, you have to. (laughs) Um, But you know what sounds right. It may not always be right, but you know what sounds, like, you know what will get your message across, which is the point of communication. And it's the same with God's word. When you immerse yourself in it, you become far more familiar with him and you know what sounds right. Another area that we can improve on, especially here, is how we can help newer Christians in their walk with Jesus. This is an area of discipleship and, and, and one that we've not always been the best at here at Maple Grove. But we are currently looking for better ways to do this as a church, how we can improve. False teachers, they can affect the church today, but we can be prepared through our study of the scripture, our application of the scripture, to walking alongside newer Christians, to walking in community with other Christians. Ultimately, everything rests on us knowing and living in the freedom that we have in Jesus Christ. We preach about it every week because it is absolutely the most important thing. We would do none of this without that. And so as we finish up today, let's heed the warning of Peter. Let's resolve to live in that truth of God's grace found in Jesus and ask God's blessing and protection on us as we do.
Would you pray with me as we close out? Heavenly Father, Lord, uh, that is my prayer. That we would resolve um, individually as a church to live this out, to, to immerse ourselves in you, Lord, through your word, through prayer, just through living in community with other believers. That is how we will grow. That is how we will get to know you better. You have given us something so special in this book. You have given us you. And, and it's so important that we get to know you and, and, and see what you've done for us. It's so much more important than like following all the rules or, or you know, trying to get everything right. Because we won't, but you're still there with your grace and your love. It's not saying that we don't try, but it's saying that, that you love us so much. You told yourself you told about yourself to us, but you also love us so much that you showed us love in taking on flesh and coming and dying, doing what we could not do so that we could be reconciled, that we could come home to you. Father, I thank you. I thank you that, that from the very beginning you put that plan into place. You knew what we were going to be like, and yet you still went through with it. Thank you so much, Lord. Help us be a light to others so that they can be drawn to you as well. Help us to show, you know, that so much why we, why we uh, follow you and love you and help us... Help that be something that is pleasing to others. That they realize that there is something here that is different than this world. And that something is you, Lord. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.